Hey, podcast listeners, before we get into the episode, I want to hear any questions you guys have. Here's some ways you could send them in. If you listen with the Anchor app, and I know some of you do, I've seen the stats, you can send an audio message in, and I can play the audio right in the episode. That's pretty cool. Cool technology there. Or if that's too intimidating for you, you can send your questions in via email to joshlukenichols at gmail.com. That's joshlukenichols at gmail.com. It's just my three names uh, at gmail.com. Or send me a DM on pretty much any social media platform. I'm pretty much always Josh Luke Nichols on any social media. I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys want to know. All those little decisions that have to be made about the wind, about the course, about you know what club to use, exactly where you want it to go, what's going to happen next, what happened before. All of those things can get in the way of just golfing. So in your mind, know that this is where you think. So if it's right beside your golf bag, you know, or right before you step into swing, this is where I think about everything. And if I'm stressed, I can own that I'm stressed. If I'm nervous, I can say, okay, I'm nervous, but I know this. And then tell yourself what you need to do. And the second you step out of that think box, now it's just time to play. And play means swing. From Foundation's Mental Performance, it's The Mental Golf Show, a show all about golf and what role the mind plays in helping you play better. I'm Josh Nichols, and on today's show, an NCAA Division I sports psychology consultant breaks down exactly how mental coaching can help you and why you should incorporate mental training into your regimen if you want to perform at a higher level. Lindsay Ross Stewart. I am a professor and associate professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I am also the graduate program director for our exercise and sports psychology graduate program and I'm also the sports psychology consultant for the SIUE Cougars which is our NCAA Division I athletics program. Very nice. When you say you know sports psychology consultant for the athletics program what what kind of things does that job title entail? My job really is to work with any athlete or team who wants to, to work with them to help them be as mentally strong as they can be or to work on their mental game. So we often talk about, we have, you know, golf coaches who would be teaching skill, strategy, who understand the game of golf. You have strength and conditioning coaches, athletic performance coaches who really work on strength and building muscle and fitness. And then we have mental training coaches or sports psychology consultants who really work on the mental side of the game. So my job is to help athletes deal with the different sort of mental experiences that can happen, the stress, the pressure, confidence, um, handling different experiences that maybe they aren't used to. You know, that's really my job is so that they have the tools in their toolbox that they can handle whatever happens uh, during their athletic experience. Right. So is it... Um... Is it set up like they schedule an appointment with you, they come into your office, talk for 30 minutes, an hour, and you guys work on it that way? It, it often is. Athletes tend to schedule to come see me and they come to my office and we talk about what's going on. 
most athletes sort of come once a week or once every couple of weeks, depending on sort of how we schedule it. And really it's about talking about their experience and then giving them strategies. I think there's a myth that athletes can go to a sports psychology consultant or a sports psychologist and leave their office 30 minutes later and somehow everything is exactly how it should be. But it's really about learning the strategies. So in those meetings, figuring out what's the best strategy for the athlete. And that's a collaborative process of finding out what they need and, and what I can offer. And then they have to leave the office and actually work on those skills and do that training in the same way that you can't just walk through a gym. And when you get out of the gym, hope that you've gained muscle, you have to have actually done the workout. And so it's very much the same way. So we have those meetings and then they're you know off to do the work and then they come back and report on how it's going and we adapt and change based on that. Do you find that, uh, you know, the athletes, is it usually their choice or the coach's choice who says, hey, you need to go see uh, Lindsay and work on your mental game? Or is the, is the athlete usually the one that's kind of stepping up to do it? I think different consultants work with different philosophies, but I have worked for the athletics department here for seven years and, and have a pretty good relationship with our athletes and our coaches. And, and that has led to athletes coming on their own. I have a rule that an athlete can be asked to come by their coach once, but after that, it has to be the athlete's mm-hmm. choice. I think when athletes are forced into it, they're, they're not committed. And if they're not committed, then it's not really going to benefit them. And athletes are busy and I don't want to waste anyone's time. So for me, it's really important that athletes are bought into the process and that they, they do come on their own and they're engaged. And the important things to recognize, too, is that mental training isn't for athletes who are struggling only. It certainly can be, but it's really another technique. It's an edge. You know, the best golfers in the world all have sports psychology consultants who are doing mental training. And so to understand that means that athletes are willing to come because they want to be the best they can. And mental training is a part of that. I know I'm biased being golf specific or golf mostly, do you see one sport that either more players tend to want mental coaching or a sport that kind of stands out as more mentally difficult? Is, is that something that stands out to you? I'm not sure if there's a sport where more come just across the board. I think each sport is pretty unique in, in its needs. I will say a sport like golf where it's individual, there's a lot of pressure a lot of the time on every single person where sometimes in team sports, that pressure isn't felt so intensely all the time. So that can lead to individual athletes coming to see me a little bit more, perhaps. I, I think often the key is coach buy-in. So if you have a coach who believes in mental training, the athletes will come see me. Mm. And a coach who maybe is a little bit hesitant to it. So to get into the like nitty gritty of what your sessions are like, uh, a lot of my questions are going to be kind of selfish because I this is in large part to help me do better, not just you know to give something to my listeners to to know. You know, are your sessions generally like so? Tell me what's been going on, and then they kind of reveal a like a mental difficulty, and then you work on that. Is that kind of how they go? It really depends where an athlete is in the process. When an athlete first comes in, you, know, you spend a little bit of the time at the beginning going over the ground rules of what sports psychology is. And sports psychology is confidential. You know, my PhD is in psychology, and so everything we do is confidential. And we go over that, and we talk about how it is not you know, the normal sort of way people think about psychology. This is not about come tell me all your problems and what that is. It's really a place to work on sport performance. And then from there, athletes really do talk about you know, why they're in their sport, something that maybe is led to them sort of feeling the way they do about their sport. And I really like to get to know my athletes and give them time to explain what's been going on with them, their history, why they, you know, why they golf, if it's golf, 
know, what are the things they like about golf? What are the things that maybe stress them out or, or don't like as much about golf and work through that. And then as the relationship continues and as they continue to come to meetings, it really is about talking about how that week went or how things have been going for them, what's been working, what's not been working and trying to develop the techniques that can help them. So if they are talking about, you know, how they're practicing great, but then when they actually get to competition, it's different. Well, let's talk about that. What's, you know, what's happening that's making it different and really getting to know what's going on with them because there's no one right way to do mental training. It's not like there's, okay, first you do this, the next is this and some kind of map that way. It's really about making sure the techniques that I give my athletes are the best techniques for them. And you can't do that unless you spend a significant amount of time getting to know the athlete. Yeah. You got to get to know them. And in that way, it is a lot. It is kind of like a counseling therapy thing, but then, you know, let's, we're not worried so much about your childhood and how you were raised. It's more of, you know, what are you struggling with in this moment and how can we get over it? Right. Right. I mean, much like a coach, if what happened in the, if the reason they golf is related to their childhood, then maybe that matters. Hmm. But it's not about, you know, you can only come see a sports psychology consultant if you have some kind of mental health disorder. That's really not what we do. And so getting to know them in reference to how to help them be a better golfer, you know, athletes are people and a good coach knows that and a good mental training coach knows that. Uh, And so it's really important to spend that time to get to know them because you may have 10 athletes who all tell you that they feel anxiety and they feel stress every time they have to putt. But if you treat them all like it's the same reason, you give them all the same technique, you haven't helped them. It's really important to figure out why are they stressed or why do they feel anxiety before they putt? What is going on there? Is it because of the way they think? Is it because they're tightening their muscles? You know, what is it that's leading to that so that you can then figure out the best technique to help treat that? So why do you think coaches send players to, you know, sports psychologist, mental coach, instead of... I mean, maybe you do help coaches too, specifically, but why do you think they choose to, all right, you're maybe beyond my expertise and now I'm going to send you to someone. Why do you think that is? I think there can be a few different reasons. I mean, perhaps the most pessimistic reason is a coach who's not sure what to do about it. And so hope someone else can help. I think in many cases, certainly in my experience as coaches who recognize the value of mental training and recognize their own expertise. And no matter how great of a coach you are, athletes are going to be more open with someone who doesn't impact playing time or doesn't impact whether or not you get to you know, be one of the, the six golfers who gets to go on the trip. So they understand that there's a benefit to that and that the mental training training is different. You know, I understand how to teach imagery in a way that a coach doesn't or how to work on self-talk in a different way. So I think most coaches are really looking at giving their athletes the best they can and giving them every opportunity and every tool that they possibly can to be successful. So what have you learned through continued education beyond just a bachelor's? You've probably learned, you know, research and more scientific looks at things rather than just anecdotal experience. Is there a few or, you know, one thing that sticks out to you that this I would not have known or would not have been able to help with if I hadn't, you know, got master's, PhD, that kind of stuff? I think there's a lot, which is good. Otherwise, it was a long time in school, right? But uh, there are a lot of things. I think sport's really interesting because so many people played sports, so we all tend to have this anecdotal evidence of how we think it should work. A lot of times when athletes become coaches, they coach the way they were taught. That's kind of all they knew. 
or they come to college and they just expect to train the same way they did in high school because that's all they knew. And I think it's the same thing in mental training. If you are an athlete in college and you get your bachelor's degree and then you're out sort of working in the mental training field, you don't necessarily understand the theory of sports psychology, why certain things work when, how to ask the questions to get athletes to really give you as much information as you need to help them. And you certainly don't know as many techniques or know how to do them in the same way. And just thinking of one example, you know, imagery is something that consistently is on every pop culture list of something you should do for mental training. And it's incredibly important and we know the impact is, is great. But a lot of times when people do imagery sort of anecdotally or, or without sort of training, it's really about um, closing their eyes, sitting in a quiet place and seeing themselves golf. So see yourself holding the, the putter, see yourself holding the driver, you know, see yourself swing. And that's really it. And that's not really what imagery is. I mean, for imagery to really be effective, it has to be a full sensory experience. It has to have all the senses there. It has to talk about the response to that. So, okay, you swung, you swing the golf club, but how did you feel after? And, you know, Josh, I listened to your imagery um, script that you put out for your listeners, and you did a great job of that, of incorporating all those senses and incorporating all that information. And I think that's really important for something to be effective. So sometimes people have anecdotal evidence or they know a little bit about it, but getting the education means you actually know exactly how to do it in a way that can be helpful for the athletes at the best possible. And also that you know why you're assigning which technique when. So, you know, not really for this podcast probably, but I could go into the theory of why imagery works for hours. You know, um, and I understand that and I understand when an athlete should be imaging what and when do we want an athlete to be imaging things related to success versus things related to skills and strategies or their motivation and how we can use that to their benefit, how to write an imagery script. And so those are all things that would be learned through further education that I think are difficult just based on sport experience or anecdotally sometimes. Yeah. And I'm, I am interested in, in better ways to help players because you know, in this um, kind of three month uh, downtime that a lot of players weren't able to get much competitive experience. They, you know, multiple players are coming to me and saying, what can I do to not be rusty or to not feel weird when I get back to playing? And, you know, my first reaction is, well, you do this every winter, you know, between fall and spring, you always have three months where you're not playing much tournament golf. But I also do try to prescribe you said imagery, I've called it visualization and I don't, you know, I don't know the difference in the terms, but the, I try to prescribe that and I try to get across that the more realistic it is, the better. And, but you're right. I don't know why. And I don't know. I didn't, I don't even know that there's differences. I just, I feel like the more realistic you can make it, the better. So if you have an example of, how how one imagery can be different from another, but they're both good. Yeah, so imagery tends to be a term that we use really to encompass the five senses. And visualization, you know, theoretically is visual. And so that right. is the difference in how we refer to them. The imagery experience, you know, using all of our senses, you know, as a golfer, you don't just see yourself golfing. You feel the golf club in your hands. You know, what's that tension like in your hands? What do your shoulders feel like? What do your feet feel like planted you know, in the grass, all of that's incredibly important. 
You know, what sounds are you hearing? Do you, what are the tastes like? Do you get dry mouth? You know, when you know that's a sign that you're ready or do you know that's a sign that you're nervous? You know, building all of that in can be really important so that it is to your, to your language, you know, as, as close as possible or, or as realistic as possible. In the literature, we call it functional equivalency. Um, and that becomes really important to make it work. Now, 20 years ago, we didn't know that about imagery. We really did think it was best to be done in a quiet room with the lights off. But the research progresses, and that's something that you get if you're in the field, you're able to continue to see that to the point of not just learning in your master's degree or your PhD, but continuing your professional development. And anyone can do that regardless of the number of degrees they have is sort of continue to learn um, by doing things like listening to podcasts like yours. So I think those things are really important when it comes to building an imagery script and then figuring out what a person wants. So some people, they really want imagery because they want some practice. So perhaps it's athletes who haven't been able to get out onto the golf course because they've been in states that have been closed um, or they haven't been able to, at least at the beginning of this, weren't able to go into indoor golf centers even uh, to work on, on their golf game. And so how do you get them imagery that really focuses on skills and then how they feel about it? So not just that they made that swing, that's, they had that swing, but also how they felt, they felt confident, they felt good, they felt calm and focused as they, as they knew their ball landed in the right spot. You know what those things are, build the imagery experience. They make it more real. There are other people who perhaps, it's not about learning skill, they feel really good about their skill, but they want imagery that's gonna be motivating to them. One of the things we know for athletes in this time where people have been sort of self-isolated or haven't been with their teams, especially for our golfers who work with, in teams, is it's hard to be motivated. You know, college athletes spend their days very structured. You know, you have to be in class at certain times. You have to be in the weight room at certain times. You have to be on the golf course at a certain time. So they're really used to structure. And when that structure all disappeared out of nowhere, it can be really hard to stay motivated. So maybe then we need to be working on imagery scripts that are focused on the motivation and how good they're going to feel when they actually get out there and how great they feel when they golf to make them motivated and focused. So it really depends on an athlete's need, what we potentially can build into the imagery and what response we, we build in for them as well. So do you work with any coaches or is it simply athletes? A large part of my position actually is working with coaches. So I run something called Coaches Roundtable where every month we do professional development, whether it's listening to podcasts or reading books or talking about a certain topic that people wanna talk about so that the coaches can really learn from each other uh, and I'm there to moderate that conversation and talk about some sports psych where necessary, but it's really about helping all of us learn from each other. And then I also work with several coaches one-on-one -on -one whenever they have questions about things or just to bring in a different perspective when I can. Do you play any sports yourself? I did. I played quite a few sports in high school and I went to university to play soccer. I'm Canadian, so I went to university there, um, but I had an injury very early in my college career. So kind of the thing that comes up in a lot of my conversations with people that are, have expertise in sports psychology is they grew up playing a sport and were either they were, they discovered something while they were playing about the mental game or they, you know, they were inspired by playing a sport to pursue it further. Is that kind of how you got into sports psychology? It absolutely is. You know, I think I'm an anomaly in that I've known I wanted to be a sports psychologist since I was in high school. And most people don't know what that job is that young. I just happened to know someone who was in the field and therefore I knew the job existed. But going through high school, you know, I played six varsity sports. Sports really were my entire life. And I knew I wanted to stay in sports for a career. And I also knew that I hated anatomy. 
So PT was not going to be an option for me and some of the other things that we think about when it comes to staying in this field of sport. I also didn't really have a huge interest in being a coach myself. So I really pursued sports psychology. I, got, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. My master's degree is in kinesiology with an exercise and sports psychology focus. And then I have a PhD in general psychology, but focused in exercise and sports psychology. So that was always really clear to me because being an athlete was really who I was. And I knew I didn't want to step away from sport. I also think being an athlete who was injured really helped me understand the value of mental skills. I probably didn't have the best mental skills going through my own injury and recognize that. And then as a grad program director, I would say the majority of students who are interested in pursuing sports psychology come from some background in sport and something about their own experience helped them realize the power of mental training, whether they wish they'd had it or they had it and it helped. Hmm. Yeah, that, it definitely is my experience and most of the people that I speak with is um, for, fortunately I was able to um, use mental coaching to help me get better rather than discover it and realize how much I could have used it. Um, but yeah, a lot of people is, man, I, what I could have done, how much better I could have been or so uh, do you, to, to players or athletes that are listening to this, or, um, if you're speaking to an athlete who thinks mental coaching is, you know, that's kind of, uh, whatever up in the clouds, you know, just teach me how to do the technical parts and how to, you know, do the nitty gritty physical parts of the game. What would you tell that player is the value of the mental game? I think the first thing I would say to that athlete is think about yourself as a golfer. So think about the last time you were golfing. Was it all physical or was there a time where you thought, oh, I'm not sure if I can do this or you were in the middle of taking a swing and your mind wandered to something else or when you were trying to decide which club to use, you got frustrated with yourself or you started to think about how on the hole before you'd made a mistake. Has there ever been a time where you were about to birdie and then you got nervous and then you didn't, you know? I would ask them those questions to recognize that every golfer, every athlete has had those experiences. Those are not physical experiences. Your golf physical ability does not change minute by minute, but your mental game does. And so if we had those experiences and we know everybody does, why not work to engage those? Why not work to develop training programs and training skills and techniques you can use so that your mind doesn't get in the way and in fact becomes your you know, strongest asset? I, th I think people understand that more and more. Certainly in my time in this field, I've seen the stigma about mental training kind of lowering a lot. This is not about being an athlete who has a problem. It is not about being an athlete who needs help. It's about being an athlete who wants to be the best, who really is committed to doing absolutely everything they can be to be successful. You know, for you, Josh, the same thing for your clients. I mean, these are people who have gone above and beyond to get more expertise and more help from you. Mental training is the same thing, to be able to get expertise from the people who know how to help. This is, the other thing I think it's important to recognize is a lot of our PGA golfers are working with sports psychology consultants and have for years, and more and more they're starting to talk about it or they're trying to talk about the mental training techniques they're using and to recognize that if the best of the best are using it, it's certainly something that every athlete should be considering. Yeah, it's, it's no secret that like you say, the best, the best players are using it. 
And if they're already that good physically and they're trying to get just a little better through any way, how much more a player that, you know, maybe struggles more could use mental coaching. I think the higher you go, the more elite you get, the physical difference gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So the difference between the best and the worst golfer on a middle school team or a high school team might be pretty big, but that difference really shrinks in college. And then it shrinks even more as players hit, you know, expert amateur or hit the PGA at different levels. And so if the physical difference can only be so much, then mental is where you can really get your edge. And that mental training can make a huge difference, especially because golf is long. I mean, you don't go out there for an hour, you go out there for three hours or six hours, day in, day out. You know, you have to be able to fight the fatigue. You have to be able to stay mentally sharp, not just on the first hole, but, you know, 60 holes in. And that becomes really important. I really do believe in some sports, there are some athletes who maybe you could say, well, they can survive without mental training. Um, But I don't think you can be elite without it. And I think in golf, honestly, to survive, you need it, you know, because it is such a mental game and because it is such a long experience and individual the entire time. So I know we're you and I are biased in this way and you work with great athletes already. So it's harder. I mean, you're smart and you can imagine working with beginners or whatever, but let's say with a college player, would you say, and I'm, this is hypothetical. This is just asking you to use your imagination, I guess. Would you say that it would be more important to time wise spend more time working on the mental game or working on the physical game or maybe some mix of both? One of the great things about mental training is it actually doesn't take a huge amount of time. So to use imagery really effectively, for example, since that's the technique we talked about, you're really talking about three to five days a week for 15 minutes maximum. So we're not asking for a huge time commitment. So the best routine is not more mental training than physical training because you don't need as much time to get the huge gains. And the research shows us anecdotally, you know, we know this, certainly I see this in my athletes all the time, when athletes can combine really deliberate, intentional physical practice with intentional mental training, that is when you see the biggest gains. So it's not one or the other, it's really about how to use them together. And the other thing to keep in mind is they really truly can be used together. So if I have a golfer who is going out to um, the golf course and he's going to golf nine rounds, he can be doing his mental training in that same time. No, they're, they're not separate things. They're really used together. I, yeah, I was, I guess I was uh, teeing you up for that. I figured that's what you would say <laughs> is the best way to train the mind. Yes, you can do it in the solitary um, imagery, you know, maybe even like on your way to the course in the car, but really the the best way to to do it is while you're playing rather than being kind of going through the motions you're intensely focused on what's my mind thinking right now, being more aware of where your brain is while you're playing, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, if you think about something like how to change your self-talk, you're certainly going to work on that outside of golfing, but then you need to be doing it when you're actually on the golf course, whether you're um, just practicing or you're out there in competition, you know, you need to be using it at the same time. So it really is about merging those two things all the time so that they become pattern. So your mental skills and your physical skills kind of become merged in this sort of pattern in your brain that when you do one, you just do the other. So I'm interested in a little bit selfishly, but also to, to people listening, how to 
I guess, track improvement with the mental game. It's so easy to track improvement with the physical game. You can say, well, I, I hit 10 fairways this round rather than eight as my average, or, you know, I'm, uh, I had 28 putts when my average putts is 31 or my scoring average, that kind of stuff. Um, and other sports as well, you know, stats and, you know, football, whatever, basketball, those are easy to track, but do you have a way to track mental improvement? There are different ways. And I think it depends a little bit on the consultant's philosophy or perspective. We certainly don't have objective measures like you're talking about where you can just look at skill gain or something like an athletic performance coach would have, or they can just look at weightlifting changes. We don't really have that, but we do have other options. You know, in sports psychology, there are questionnaires that will assess confidence, motivation, anxiety, perfection. I mean, you name it, we have a questionnaire that athletes can sort of fill out and so we can have them do that before they start their mental training. And then, you know, a certain amount of time later to see if there's been progress. You know, even there's even questionnaires to look at whether or not an athlete's imagery ability has changed. So that's certainly an option um, that many consultants use. That's what we use a lot in the research as well. But then there's also these sort of subjective components of talking to athletes. I mean, athletes know if they feel different. Athletes will know if their mind's more clear or they're able to stay focused for longer, if the mindfulness is working. They can talk about um, feeling more ready or feeling like they were confident and focused and ready to go. And so those things often can be really important indicators that the training they're doing is working. And I'm a big believer that we should listen to athletes. So when the athlete tells you it's working or not, I think that's really important. And then, of course, you hope that that is then leading the goal is that it's leading to performance change. So if an athlete changes very little except they start doing mental training and their golf score goes down, chances are the mental training has really worked. So there's that measure as well, which, of course, has other influences. You don't know what else they're doing. But I think all of those things taken together can be a big impact. This is a conversation that's had in sports psychology a lot, especially as more and more professional programs are hiring full-time sports psychology consultants or mental training coaches, is how do you show your worth? And these tend to be the ways that people talk about it. The other way, honestly, in the field to show your worth is if athletes keep coming back and athletes want to work with you. You know, one of the main reasons athletes see me is because they had a teammate who saw me, who felt success or felt change. So then they come to have that experience. And that word of mouth is often a sign that something that they're doing within mental training is working, that they would recommend it to other people. Mm, and in the way you say that felt success or felt change that that pretty much answers the well there's no there are objective ways to measure it but mostly it's the player doesn't know what they what they don't know until they learn what it feels like to have have a better mental game have a better outlook have a better perspective exactly right and if an athlete is saying that they feel more confident and that feeling of being more confident is allowing them to golf more free and to trust their game it's going to lead to better scores and objectively if maybe we gave them some assessment if there wasn't an objective change in confidence it really doesn't matter you know perception i say all the time in my classes and to my athletes like perception is reality our perception is our truth and so helping athletes feel that change is really often what can lead to that change which is important Hmm. yeah and i i've i've kind of tried to look for ways to measure that improvement because it's you know it's easier to 
you know, quote unquote, sell to, to someone who doesn't already have a mental coach, you know, look at this player, they, they went from here to here, but how about instead of look at this player's mental stats in quotes, talk to the player and realize, wow, they used to be this way. And now this is how they think. And the proof is in the pudding is the player has, has a, has improved, not objectively, but just mentally. And you can just tell in the way they talk. Well, and that's right. And so even if you don't have that objective measure, you know, that we kind of think about, we have all these other things that give us the information we need. And certainly one of those things is language that athletes use with their coaches. I think if you ask coaches, they'll tell you they can tell the language that is being used by an athlete who is confident versus one who is struggling or an athlete who sort of is really focused on what they're doing versus an athlete who's having a hard time getting their mind to focus on the moment and is kind of letting their mind wander. The language changes, the body language changes, the tone and the way things are said changes when an athlete is confident versus not confident or self-regulated versus stressed. You know, all of those things matter. You know, the golfer who throws their golf club is having an issue with emotional regulation versus one who isn't. So we can see these things and, and sort of know it's working. The tricky thing from a scientific perspective is athletes are, don't live in a bubble of sports psych. So they're doing other things at the same time. And so because of that, it can be kind of tricky to have the objective measure. You know, obviously we have experimental research and we can do it there, but in an applied setting, it's difficult, but there are enough other things that can be placed together to show that an athlete's mental game has improved. So is there a, a specific um, research, uh, you know, study, uh, something like you, like you mentioned, experimental research and that side of it, the academic side of it, that comes to your mind as this one thing influenced the way I help players more than any other type of research? It's a little bit of a tricky question. I think all academics or, you know, all professors, we have one area that is our primary area of research. And I certainly have that. My research, everything I published sort of on my own and that I've published through grad school with my mentors and other co-authors is in imagery and looking at how athletes use imagery to increase their confidence, to then increase their performance. So that really obviously is near and dear to my heart. And it's something I feel really passionately about. I'm a big believer that confidence impacts everything. So if you can help an athlete gain confidence or maintain their confidence, you are simultaneously helping them uh, be less stressed, be focused, you know, be able to control their emotions, be able to feel good even in stressful situations. So working on confidence is probably something that I would say is my primary when I work with athletes. You know, everything I do is based on a theory, um, Albert Bandura's sort of self-efficacy. But I think to be a good consultant, you can't work only from what you think is best. So a lot of what I do is based on what the athletes need. So if an athlete comes in and they're talking about you know, being stressed, my in, I don't automatically say, well, we have to do imagery or it must be confidence. It's really about figuring out well, what does that mean? You know, stress is, means something different to every athlete. So I do have that as my base, but I think most importantly, it's listening to the athlete to figure out what they personally need. So you, you mentioned earlier, um, if a player comes in and says, I'm able to, to do so well in practice, but when I get out on the course, I struggle. And I know you would, you would probably respond to that with more questions and try to find out more, but you know, what kind of thing in your tool belt do you have to help players that say it's so easy in practice, but when the pressure's on, I start struggling. Cause that's a huge thing. You know, every player struggles with that. And I 
find myself talking to that a lot with players. So what do you do in that kind of back and forth? I think that's incredibly common in all sports, but particularly in golf, because there's a lot of time to think in golf uh, in between every action. So in between every hole, in between every swing, there's a lot of time to think. And sometimes thinking can get in our way. So one of the first things I would do is try and figure out whether or not this stress is the mind impacting the body or the body impacting the mind. And that's important because sometimes we'll say to a golfer, well, just breathe. But if it's really about the things they're thinking to themselves, then telling them to breathe is not going to change anything. But if you say to them, okay, well, let's look at your self-talk, and really they're saying great things to themselves, it's just that they get so tense in their muscles, well, you haven't helped them. So the first thing is to figure out which is happening. Um, my orientation or the way I'm trained is certainly to, to look at the cognitive, so what people are thinking, and, and that would be maybe where I would start once I figured out which way to go. And when it comes to how athletes are thinking, a lot of times we talk about something called paralysis by analysis. And CN Bylock has a great book called Choke out there that really discusses this a lot and has done quite a bit of research actually using sort of golf experimentally um, in different sports, but really shows that sometimes we can overthink something so much to the point where it gets in our way. And I think this happens in golfing a lot where all those little decisions that have to be made about the wind, about the course, about, you know, what, club to use, exactly where you want it to go, what's going to happen next, what happened before. All of those things can get in the way of just golfing. You know, I know in somewhere around like the year 2012 in golf, people really start to talk about the think box, play box. Um, and through sort of the example used by sort of a world champion uh, female golfer talked about using that. And I do think the think box, play box is a really good example of a technique that can be used in which it's okay to think here. So in your mind, know that this is where you think. So if it's right beside your golf bag, you know, or right before you step into swing, this is where I think about everything. And if I'm stressed, I can own that I'm stressed. If I'm nervous, I can say, okay, I'm nervous, but I know this. And then tell yourself what you need to do. And the second you step out of that think box, now it's just time to play. And play means swing. And that's all. And if you step into the play box and your mind starts to wander, you step back into the think box. Because in that play box, all you do is play. And that, I think, is an important tool, um, the idea of how to control your mind and how to use it when it's needed. So that's definitely something that I talk to golfers about. I also think there's uh, just the consistent need for self-talk. Athletes are hypercritical of themselves. Human beings in general are, but athletes are in particular. So athletes will dwell on that one bad shot. I mean, I'm sure you know this from your own experience. You might play 18 rounds and 17 of those holes were great, but all you think about is the one hole where you made a mistake. So athletes really need to train their brains to focus on the 17 holes and focus on the things they did well. And we talk in sport a lot, or we talk in life a lot about learning from mistakes. And I think that's true, but we don't need to punish ourselves with mistakes. So learn from it. Okay. What, why did that not go where I wanted it to be? Why is that ball not where I wanted it to be on the horse? Okay. I learned from it. Now I'm going to throw the mistake go and focus on how good I am and what I know I can accomplish because holding on to that mistake is no longer learning, it's punishing oneself. And if you punish yourself, you can't be confident. You know, it takes away from focusing on what you really need. So those types of training about how to think about things differently, how to let things go, how to think about the right thing at the right time, I think are incredibly important. And then I do think for a lot of golfers, it's really important to understand how to breathe properly, how to recognize when certain muscles are tense. I mean, it's such a finite skill that if your elbow is slightly tense or your shoulder is slightly tense, you are not gonna put that ball where you need it to be. So I think there's a combination of both, but it really starts with figuring out which is more important for that athlete at the time. Yeah. And, um, 
I mean, can't get much more practical than all the things you just listed. Um, But through all of those, it seems like just having a self-awareness is seems like the biggest thing. Cause if you're not self-aware of whether, whether you're thinking in the play box or, or, or whatever it is, or, or you're not aware of when your muscles are tense and those kind of things, then you'll have no way to, to learn from it and correct it. But how to a player that just has never even thought about these things, how do you teach self-awareness? How can you, how can you teach the player to, to kind of look inwardly more? That's a great question. You know, mindfulness has become obviously a term that is sort of buzz, you know, buzz term in society, but certainly we use it a lot in sport right now as well. And one part of mindfulness is self-awareness. You know, you can't make change if you don't know what you need to change. One of the things that often happens in mental training is those meetings working with an athlete are about helping them figure out what's going on. A lot of times athletes, you know, if their golf game is struggling, they say, oh, I don't know, I, I need to work on my swing, right? And they'll spend tons of time watching their swing, videotaping their swing, watching their swing. And maybe that's true. Maybe there is a mechanical issue. And then, okay, that works. But in a lot of cases, the mechanics are fine. And so then it becomes about, okay, if the mechanics are fine, let's really talk about the other things and helping athletes talk through, well, what were you thinking? You know, what were you processing? One of the things we have athletes do is write out their best, you know, the best golf game they ever had, the best day on the course they ever had, and then write out the worst. And what were the differences? You know, what happened in those differences? What were the differences in how you were thinking? I often have athletes journal for a couple weeks. So journal after every time you go out on the golf course, write down how you felt, what were the thoughts that were going through your head, and then what your score was. And what your score was by whole, you know, because it can be different. Well, and then it will help them notice, oh, those times where I said I really wasn't thinking about anything, I was actually hitting my numbers. Those times where I was talking about being frustrated or or so hyper-focused on, oh, I'm about to win, I'm about to win, I somehow did not golf as well. So that's sort of one of the steps you can use to help with self-reflection or self-assessment is just starting to really think about it. You have to be a little careful because we don't want to get golfers to the point where they weren't thinking and now they're thinking so much and we're telling them think less. So it can be a, a tricky circle, but that's certainly one of the ways to start it. And then you can help an athlete, well, which of these things you're thinking about or which of these things you're doing are helpful and which are the things that are not helping you. So how do we change those? And it's not easy. I mean, this isn't something that an athlete talks about for 30 minutes, and then they can fix. It's an ongoing process, which is why we see our professional golfers talking about starting to incorporate meditation into their routines and trying to incorporate these things because they too are in this ongoing process of being able to truly sort of regulate themselves and understand themselves. Yeah, this, uh, you, you struck a chord is my, you know, my job, your job, the job of any mental coach, sports psychologist is to free up their thinking. But in order to do that, we have to introduce new thoughts or at least new new techniques but they have a goal they have a uh there's they're solving the problem of thinking too much in a lot of ways or replacing thoughts so it is it is a fine line so i struggle okay for tomorrow's round i i want you to think this 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 and this 
and you know their their head starts swimming like whoa i i gotta think all of this and then i step back and realize okay scratch all that (laughs) i would rather you free up and just play rather than think all of these things um and that is hard so uh, you know how do you how do you straddle that fence of giving them too much to think and taking away things to think I think it's a balance and I think it's about timing and probably very different depending on level. You know, I've, I've worked uh, with golfers really from about the age of 12 on over the course of my career, even though I work primarily with college athletes now. And I think the younger they are, the less you can give. And it has to be very, very simple, but even, you know, college athletes, you know, one of the things I talk to my athletes about is if I think there are seven different techniques that can help them, I'm not going to give them seven different techniques in one meeting. I mean, that's just not useful. It's overwhelming. And so it's about one thing at a time. And I think thinking is the same thing. So if you have, you know, to your point, Josh, if you have a bunch of things you want them to work on, if you can give one and they can work on that one thing. And once they feel confident with that one thing and it's become part of their sort of memory and just something they're doing instinctively, then you can work on the next one and you can kind of layer and build, you know, those techniques. But I think when we try and throw everything at someone right away, it can be really difficult for them to do any of them properly. That's true for physical skills and mental skills. So when we work with mental skills for athletes, it's the same thing about let's work on this one technique. Let's work on it. Let's see how it's working. Let's talk about what you liked and didn't like. Okay, let's adapt it until it becomes what you're doing and you feel really successful with it. Now let's add this other thing. The other thing I think is important is recognizing when you get to think and when you don't. So there are, you know, that's why I like the think box, play box, but I also think, you know, practice is for thinking sometimes and competition isn't, you know, you already practice, trust your training, trust the process. Now just go play is really important. And, but athletes need practice to think about things. And that sometimes is only possible in an environment where athletes are allowed to fail in practice and still feel successful. So are are we allowing our athletes to think about something new or think about changing their mechanics a little bit or trying something different and taking risk and then rewarding that? Or when they do those things, likely it's not going to look pretty the first time. So do we punish them? And if we punish athletes for taking risk or we punish them for thinking about things in practice, then they're really never going to get better. But if we can use practice as a place to really encourage those things and help them develop their confidence in those things, then they can use them in actual competition in a really effective way. Very well said. Um, So kind of as we wind down, do you have something that you could tell the listeners of this being primarily golfers, um, and do you have something you could say that practically a, a player could work on, you know, as if you are helping them as their sports psychologist? So many things I have to decide what I'm going <laughs> to. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's so hard when you want to say everything to that point of one thing at a time. I think it depends on age, but I think for golfers who are really looking for that next level and maybe introducing themselves to mental training, one of the first things they can do is spend some time to think about what they think about themselves as a golfer and then think about what they want to think about themselves as a golfer. And something very simple is a mantra, just something they say to themselves that they say when they're in the car driving, you know, to see you or driving to the golf course, when they say it, when they you know get to the golf course, they say it to themselves when they you know, line up for that first hole all the time. It's a consistent mantra and it can seem a little bit cheesy, but the truth is it basically rewires the brain to start to tell you what you want to hear instead of what your brain is sort of these negative things your brain is telling you. Often people, if they don't want to do a full mantra, will do something called parking, 
where you um, pick a word, a phrase, a song lyric that you like, something that is powerful for some of your older listeners, if they have a tattoo that can work, um, you know, whatever that is. And every time you see that, you say this word to yourself that reminds you of what you're doing. And so maybe the word is focus. Maybe the word is uh, amazing because you want to remind yourself how amazing you are. You know, it really can be anything you want as PG or R rated as you want it to be as the athlete that has impact for you. And every time you look at that tattoo or you look at the dot you put on your wrist or you look at where you wrote that word, it reminds you of what you're doing out there and you park all the negative stuff. You park all the stuff that's not helping you and you just focus on what you want. And I've had a lot of athletes have success with that because it's really simple, but it starts to train our brain to focus on the positive. The, the philosophy of you are you, or you become what you think of yourself. You can, you can re like you said, rewire your brain by continually telling yourself one thing and not the other, the, the self-talk, uh, changing your self-talk. And even if it's just one word you introduce rather than you never let yourself say a bad thing ever, you're at least introducing the one thing that can, can help turn the corner. Right. And we're human beings. So people are going to say bad things to themselves. Our brains work a little bit like that. And, but then what can happen is the person will feel guilty for saying it. And then the guilt makes them feel bad. And it, it becomes a little bit of a vicious circle. If there can just be understanding for yourself. So for your listeners, just have an understanding that it's okay to have those thoughts. All people sometimes get frustrated with themselves. All people say not so nice things to themselves sometimes. But what do you do when you say that? You know, it's about talking yourself through it and saying that is not true and re responding with your mantra or looking at your parking word and focusing on what's going to help you. It's the what you do next part that really becomes important. And the more you work on that as an athlete, the less those negative thoughts are going to come. You know, you're going to retrain your brain, you know, to, as you said, Josh. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of research that looks at this, particularly in golf, actually, and how when people say things to themselves like, don't miss, they set themselves up to miss because they start to focus on all the places they don't want the ball to go. And so by focusing your brain on what you want to have happen, you know, it's, it can sound simple, right? I put it out into the environment, but it really changes what you focus on. It changes what you're thinking about and it lets you, you know, swing the club in a more free way. And so it will have huge impacts on performance over time. Hmm. Well, I, I appreciate your time. This has been excellent. Um, do you have any final thoughts, questions, comments, concerns before we go? Oh, I thank you very much for having me, you know, for your listeners, if they are interested in mental training, there are mental training coaches, sports psychologists all over the country, you know, to really sort of find someone in the community, um, you know, work with you, Josh, or, or who you can sort of work on these things because they make a big difference. And the younger you are when you start mental training, the stronger your mental training often is. Dr. Lindsay Ross Stewart is an associate professor for Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. She is also the graduate program director for their exercise and sports psychology graduate program, and she is the sports psychology consultant for their Division I athletics program. If you'd like to go through the visualization training that I created that Dr. Ross Stewart was referring to, head to foundationsmp.com. Hover over the resources tab. It's right there. I'm Josh Nichols, and thanks for listening to The Mental Golf Show.